Let me put my conclusions right up front so you know where I'm coming from, besides Linden, New Jersey, a long time ago. <laughs> I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick now for 35 years. First, the evidence is overwhelming. Planet Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. In other words, some, underlined 18 times, some UFOs are alien spacecraft. Most are not. I don't care about them. Second, we're the subject of flying saucers, and I prefer flying saucers to UFOs because all flying saucers are UFOs. Very few UFOs are flying saucers. All great-grandfathers are men. Not all men are great-grandfathers. I happen to be one, incidentally, so I'm the great-grandfather of ufology. <laughs> the, the second conclusion is that uh, we're dealing with a cosmic water gate. In other words, some few people in government know what's going on. Uh, not many. You don't keep secrets by telling everybody. Uh, that's not how, I've worked under security for 14 years in the States, and uh, there are a lot of secrets. And you don't get access to all of them. And we'll mention a few as we go along. Uh, anybody who works for the NSA in the past here? I wonder if they don't up in public. I shouldn't even ask the question. Uh, no such agency, NSA, you know. Oh, there's somebody back there. Okay. <laughs> Waved their hand anyway. Uh, the third conclusion is that there are no good arguments against the first two conclusions. <laughs> and the fourth is we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium. Visits to planet Earth by alien spacecraft, successful cover-up of the best data, bodies and wreckage since at least 1947, let's say. We don't know how far back the truth goes. Okay, now, question of evidence. Uh, <clears throat> this is the largest study ever done for the United States Air Force. Project Blue Book Special Report 14, the work done at Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. The report wasn't distributed at the time, 1955. Instead of press release was put out in which the Secretary of the Air Force lied. I know that's hard to believe, but a government official lying? Uh, it happened. And why do I say that? On the basis, this is what he said in the press release. I'm not making this up. On the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those popularly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. I feel certain that even the unknown 3% could have been explained as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been obtained. Yeah, the only trouble with that is that it's total nonsense. Why do I say that? Here's the breakdown of the cases. You'll notice the bottom category, the unknowns, they're the only ones we're interested in. 21.5%. Nobody I know ever rounded off three as 21.5. You'll notice the next to the last category insufficient information. That was the other part of what he said. If more complete observational data had been available, by definition, if there wasn't enough information, it was not listed as an unknown. I'll give this report for getting me started to be heavily involved in ufology. 
I had found it at the University of California Berkeley Library. I'd read 10 books before this. None of them had mentioned it. So it came as quite a surprise. And then, because I'm a data hound, I look through the report, and I look at what the Secretary of the Air Force said, and I say, I don't like being lied to by an official at that level. That pushed me to join APRO and NICAP, the two big old organizations no longer around. I'm still around, but they're not. Uh, and it was, you know, dinner table conversation, not dinner table, but work lunch table at the office with other scientists. And I joined those organizations, and I finally decided I wanted to go public. Uh, Grant mentioned Frank Edwards. I had moved to Indianapolis. I was on a three years here, three years there, three years someplace else. There's no security in being a nuclear physicist, I'll tell you that. Uh, I got to know Frank, and just before I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to work for Westinghouse Astronuclear after yet another program had been canceled. I think I've set a record for working on canceled government-sponsored R&D programs. Uh, Frank gave me a copy of his book. I called him and said, Frank, uh, you know everybody, which he did, and here I am in Pittsburgh. Uh, give me some names of people. I want to go public. He gave me a bunch of names. Uh, I, I get a kick out of One was the, uh, the director of a great show called Contact, of all things, uh, on KDKA Pittsburgh, one of the big stations in the country. A talk show, I thought being a Westinghouse nuclear physicist, I'd be welcomed on the show because Pittsburgh is very much a Westinghouse town. And it was, don't call us, we'll call you. Less than a month later, they called me. At 6.30, could I do the 7 o'clock show, please? Somebody had canceled. And I've often wondered, how many guys did they call before they finally found somebody? <laughs> I lived near the station, so I went on. Somebody at work heard me. That's how I did my first lecture in somebody's living room. I went on from there to do the program and several other lectures. Happened to ride to work one of two days with somebody whose husband was the dean at Carnegie University, Carnegie Tech. Uh, I said, I'd like to speak there. Have you talked to the dean? No, I talked to Dr. So-and-so. He wasn't interested. Why don't you talk to the dean, Stan? He's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. I called. We booked the talk. He asked me how much that I want. I knew it. it was a daytime talk. I'd have to take time off work. So I said, how about $100? I figured he'd knock me down to 50 He bought me for 100 Then he told me what he was paying the other speakers in the series, 1200 1500 1700 <laughs> The talk went very well. He wrote the agent through whom he had booked the other speakers, and they booked me at the Engineering Society of Detroit. Now, I drive Japanese cars pretty much, but I still respect the members of the Engineering Society of Detroit. 300 bucks in expenses. They were sold out three weeks in advance for 1,008 people for dinner and a talk, and there wasn't one negative question. Now, I couldn't help but respond to that. So that got me rolling. I was a ufologist. People say, why'd you decide to leave industry? I didn't decide. I had a family to support. So then it was, let's get the facts. Let's get the data. Let's get the lectures. Let's keep on. People say, when are you going to retire? I say, why should I retire? I like my boss. That's me. 
they also did a quality evaluation here. Quality is important. You'll notice that 35% of the best cases could not be explained. Uh, only 18% of the poor ones. And yet you will get people saying, well, Dr. Donald Menzel said all uh, witnesses, uh, sightings that can't be explained are poor observers. Nonsense. Plain, pure nonsense. Here's two other sources of information for people who say there isn't any data. The UFO evidence on the left put out by NICAP, data on thousands of cases, 18% couldn't be explained. On the right, one everybody should be interested in, Symposium on UFOs. The Congress of the United States, Committee on Science and Astronautics, held hearings. Six scientists testified in person, six more of us in writing only. I was one of the latter group of six. I was the only one of the sick of the 12 who didn't have a PhD. And I'm the only one who's still alive, too, because I was the youngest guy, I think. Uh, the best paper by Dr. James E. McDonald, a professor of physics, University of Arizona, talked to over 500 witnesses. 41 of the best cases are in this report. Next time somebody tells you, and I have a few copies at my table, that there aren't any good cases, tell them to look at Jim's work. Fine investigator. And then the University of Colorado study, and everybody says, well, didn't they show there was nothing to flying saucers? Well, Dr. Condon claimed that. But if you look at the report and you listen to the findings of a special UFO subcommittee of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and I was not a member of the committee, they wouldn't let me on it, because even though I'm a member of the AIA, I had reached a conclusion after 11 years of study. That's not surprising, is it? Anyway, they found that any phenomenon with 30% of the cases investigated that couldn't be explained is certainly worthy of further investigation, 30%. What percentage of isotopes are fissionable? 1%. Can we build atomic bombs and nuclear reactors? Of course. Who cares about the other 99%? So even the Condon report, 965 pages, and I was given my first copy by KDKA Pittsburgh, the station on which I had done my first radio show. And there's Dr. J. Allen Hynek's book. He was the Air Force scientific consultant for 21 years. He lists 70 cases that couldn't be explained. Very conservative man, the same age as my father. I used to chide him about that a little bit. But at least he had the sense to come out and say, hey, there's something worth studying here. You set up the Center for UFO Studies. Funny how the astronomers never talk about Dr. Hynek's book. Kind of interesting. Now, this monstrosity is an early model of the engine of a nuclear-powered aircraft. If you look to the lower left, you'll see two jet engines. There's a reactor in the middle of the cylinder on top. This is about 1955, 56. I worked on this program for three years. Now, you heard about secrecy. There are a lot of things that go on that we just don't know about. When I worked for General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department, in 1958, our budget near Cincinnati was $100 million. 3,500 people worked there, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. This was not six professors and 20 grad students. 
I saw the handwriting on the wall. I get out after three years, and it was canceled 16 months after I left. Uh, crazy world. Now, what a flight vehicle would look like is like that. Uh, two jet engines and a reactor in the middle in that cylinder. It would have the uh, nice advantage of having unlimited range. It could fly for thousands of hours. Uh, most airplanes can't fly for very long, so it would be neat to have such a system. The program was canceled. They all are. Here's a nuclear-powered ramjet. The idea here is to carry it aloft to the B-52, and it would deliver an A-bomb any place in the world. We're good at building things to bomb people with. Then we come to the fission rocket. You'll see a man in the middle there that to give you an idea of the size of these things. There were several different programs. We didn't just talk about them. I worked for Westinghouse on this. The idea is uh, very cold liquid hydrogen comes into the reactor, goes down around, gets heated in the reactor, comes out at 4,000 degrees. Uh, well, you'll see one. I'll show you. There's the one I worked on at Westinghouse. Power level was only 1,100 megawatts. The power level of Hoover Dam is 2,000 megawatts. It's a lot larger than this. This is real. This is not science fiction. The big one was Phoebus. Los Alamos built it. About this big, 4,400 megawatts. Twice the power, a little more than twice the power of Hoover Dam. This was successfully operated before the program was canceled, of course, in the late 60s. So next time somebody tells you you can't get here from there, well, if you're stuck with chemical engines, that's true. But we're not stuck with chemical engines. This was operated successfully, high point of my professional life, before they canceled the program and I was out of a job. But what's really exciting Oh, this is one in operation. Area 51 is behind that mountain. This is out at the nuclear test site. You don't want to be close when these things are running. That, they're quite radioactive. Those are tanks of liquid hydrogen. The exhaust, these are upward firing systems. It's a lot easier to do that way. This is real. The nuclear test site outside Las Vegas. Now, the real big guy on the block is nuclear fusion. You're all dependent, all of us, on nuclear fusion. That's what makes the energy in the sun. And in every other of the 200 billion stars in the galaxy and in the billions of other galaxies, nuclear fusion, we have joined the exclusive club. Probably the last ones to join <laughs> people on this planet. You've heard about nuclear fusion, H-bombs. Those are fusion devices. We have built them. We have tested them. We have exploded them. Lots of them. The idea of these, don't worry about these being equations. If you look at the top line, that's helium-3 and D for heavy hydrogen, deuterium. gives you helium-4 and proton. I can't even see with my glasses. The big thing is that 18.3 MeV million electron volts. Now, normal chemical reactions, you light a match, you run an engine on gasoline and oxygen, etc. It's a few electron volts, under 20 per reaction. Each fusion reaction, eight 
14 million electron volts. We're not playing games here. Well, wait, I want to make a point here. Uh, it's a little progression. In 1944, a big bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster. Released the energy of 10 tons of dynamite. And you could put it in an airplane, a B-29, and make a big hole in the ground. We used a lot of them in bombing, 44. When we stepped up the nuclear ladder in 1945, the first atomic bomb, fission bomb, released the energy 15,000 tons of dynamite. 15,000 versus 10. We weren't finished. 1952, we exploded our first fusion device, H-bomb, Release the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. The fireball was three miles wide. Obliterated an island. This kind of thing that uh, Grant was talking about. The Russians exploded one a few years later. 57 million tons of TNT energy release. I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel in 1962. You can pick, kick particles out the back end of a rocket. That was an Air Force study, incidentally. <clears throat> the particles will have 10 million times as much energy per particle as you can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. So when somebody tells you, you can't get here from there, you might say, you mean on a bicycle? Stupid thing to say. So let's clear up a few points. The real science says, if you want to go to the stars, we know how to go. You just got to put up the dough. Uh, all the programs that are, you know, like going to the moon cost $20 billion. I'm not saying you can go down to Walmart and order one. It takes a lot of work, a lot of people. Uh, but we're accustomed to spending lots of money. In the United States, for example, uh, the military, well, the world military budget this year is a mere trillion dollars. Trillion. The Washington Post said just the military intelligence budget two years ago was $52.6 billion. And all that data is born classified. Mr. Snowden, notwithstanding. It's mostly NSA, CIA, NRO, National Reconnaissance Office. So let's get into the real world when we start talking about these things. Is that a response? <laughs> okay. Never mind the sauce. You see the guys who were driving. Does a nuclear physicist believe in little green men? Well, they're not green. They usually are little. Yes, I believe our planet has not only been visited by vehicles, but vehicles that are, have beings inside. Call them aliens if you want, little guys, whatever you want to call them. Not once or twice, lots and lots of times. Wait a minute. Well, okay. Physical trace cases. I better mention these while I'm at it. 
how come they've never landed? I've had people ask me that. I said they've landed all the time. Ted Phillips in Missouri has collected more than 4,000 physical trace cases from 80 countries in which people see craft on the ground one-sixth of the time accompanied by beings, for want of a better term. It gets dull. You read a few hundred of these cases, and the same thing keeps happening all over the world. Oh, the New York Times doesn't cover it, or the Washington Post, but it still keeps happening. Read the MUFON Journal. Uh, this is a case in Delphos, Kansas. I got involved. Ted, this is one of Ted's cases. Uh, Ronnie Johnson, age 16, was finishing his chores for the evening, looks up, there's his saucer sitting over the ground there. Uh, he's paralyzed, can't move. His dog is too. And then this thing takes off. He dashes in the house, tells his folks, they go out, they see it leave, they call the sheriff. Next day he comes out, checks for radiation, that's all everybody worries about. Well, wasn't radioactive. Ted sent me samples of the soil from the ring that was affected, that's on the right, and from nearby soil on the left. You'll notice that sophisticated soil retention device there. <laughs> I had somebody who said he wasn't going to believe anything I said because of that lousy paper plate. <laughs> when I was at the University of Chicago, there was a Nobel Prize winning physics experiment in which they used a coffee can to hold up an important piece of equipment. It happened to be just the right size. If they can use a coffee can, I can use a paper plate. <laughs> had good test run. The soil had too high a level of salts, if you will, to grow anything. For two years, it wouldn't grow anything. There are lots of cases like this. The famous Betty and Barney Hill case. The dog is not an alien. That's their dog. Uh, and incidentally, my first meeting with the two of them, the only one with Barney, was because that television station, radio station, KDKA, called me and said they were coming to town, told me where they were staying, which is very unusual. And I called and we had dinner together. Barney died less than six months later. I was very favorably impressed with them, and I was in Betty's house after that a number of times. And Betty's niece, Kathleen Marden, and I have worked on a couple of books together. We're talking about another one. Uh, I was very impressed with the Hills. She was a social worker, incidentally. Barney was on the Governor's Civil Rights Commission. Very special people. One of the important things about that case is Betty, the, 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 this was done under hypnosis. They only remembered seeing a saucer and there was a two hour missing time period and they developed physical symptoms. Barney developed ulcers and so forth. And his doctor says, Barney, I can't do anything more for you. I think you ought to see a psychiatrist. Uh, well, people thought that ulcers were triggered by psychiatric input, if you will. So he winds up with Dr. Benjamin Simon, who just happens to be the world's top expert on what today we call PTSD, Harvard psychiatrist, ran a hospital with 3,000 beds for World War II veterans, shell shock war veterans, they used to call it, PTSD. 3,000 beds. The Army made a movie, Let There Be Light, showing how Dr. Simon used hypnosis to get these people back to sort of normal living. You know, your buddy's head gets blown off next to you in battle. It's hard to handle that. Why him, not me, you know, et cetera. 
So Dr. Simon didn't know a darn thing about flying saucers, but he knew an awful lot of people who had traumatic experiences. And he has said in writing that the emotional intensity as they each relived their experience separately, not together, they each had 10 sessions. And he had to stop one each because he thought the emotional intensity was too great. They were terror stricken. Now here's a guy whose opinion is worth something on that. He worked with thousands of people who'd had traumatic experiences every bit as great as those of his veterans. Betty, under hypnosis, relives how she's trying to get the leader to tell her where he's from. Great question. I know you're not from around here, she said. Uh, understatement of the week. Uh, and instead of answering the question, where are you from, he shows her a, a three-dimensional model, map, whatever you want to call it, points of light for stars and lines in between, occasional trade routes, uh, that sort of thing. And she asks, well, where are you on the map? And he says, do you know where you are? Well, I don't know anything about astronomy. Well, how can I tell you where I'm from if you don't know where you're at? End of discussion. <laughs> you know, I really don't know what went on in Dr. Simon's head when he's listening to this. What is this crazy, you know, a star map? But he did something very sensible. He asked if she could remember what it looked like. She said yes. He gives her a post-hypnotic suggestion. If and only if she can remember it accurately, please draw it later on. And she goes home, she draws it, she brings it in, and it's in the book, The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller. And, you know, base stars, occasional trade routes, who knows what this means? Well, a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish did something nobody else had ever done. She built a bunch of, there's Marjorie. You can see how long ago the picture was taken. Notice my beard there, a uh, little darker. Uh, and she was a sculptor. She made the model of what the alien looked like from Betty's description. And she went and visited Betty. She was a school teacher in Ohio. Betty lived in New Hampshire. Went and visited her, got more information. She wound up building more than 20 three-dimensional models. Looking like this. Her biggest one had 256 stars in it, each in its proper three-dimensional location. That's a lot of numbers to come copy out of the star catalogs. The library at Ohio State University wouldn't let her take the, the catalogs out, the star catalogs. So she had to copy out all these numbers. Fish line built a total of 20 of these. The idea was to walk around the model and see if she could find any pattern that matched in three dimensions what Betty had drawn in two. A reasonable question. Looks hopeless, though. So she kept whittling down the number of stars, because some astronomers say, well, this kind of star wouldn't have planets, and blah, blah, blah. Kept following their instructions, basically. Finally, she found a match. that matched angle for angle, line length for line length, what Betty had drawn. And she had asked me to help with this work. I met with her, met with her and Dr. Hynek in Chicago at the Adler Planetarium going over her work and was able to identify the 16 stars in the pattern. And the numbers have all changed a bit because we didn't have good data on the distance to the stars because nobody was going anywhere. The astronomers would say, hey, you can't get anywhere from here. So what difference does it make? You know the angle. You know where to look for a given star. 
doesn't matter whether it's 30 light years or 50, but if you're trying to do what she was trying to do, it does matter a great deal. And so the base stars, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Can't see them from here. You've got to go below the equator. But something very special. They just happen to be the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in our entire local neighborhood. We're out in the boondocks here. The next star over from the sun is 4.3 light years away. The galaxy is 100,000 light years across, so it's not too far. But these two stars from each other are only an eighth of a light year apart. They're 30 times closer to each other than we are to the next star over. We're out in the boonies. These guys got next door neighbors. From planet around one looking at the other, you can see the other star all day long. You could learn quite a bit about the planets around it. And incidentally, there are about 2,000 stars within 55 light years of here. Don't let anybody ever try to pass off on you the nonsense that, oh, intergalactic travel would take too much energy. Who cares about between galaxies? Andromeda's two million light years away. Who cares? They're 39 light years from here. It seems reasonable to me that if you've got a next door neighbor, it's going to push you toward having interstellar travel sooner than it pushes us. Doesn't that make sense? You go visit your grandparents if they live only 10 miles away much more often than if they live 1,000 miles away. Okay. Uh, I published the first article in that great journal, Saga. Probably nobody remembers it, but... And then I convinced Astronomy Magazine to do an article, which they did. They got more response than anything they'd ever published. And they put together a 32-page full-color booklet with all the, the original article and the commentary and all that stuff. They sold 10,000 copies almost immediately. And then Carl Sagan, whose name was on the cover of this little 32-page booklet, he and I were classmates at the University of Chicago for three years. His lawyer threatened to sue them because his name was on the front. I mean, this had to do with UFOs. We can't have that. So they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I wound up with 16,000 copies of that booklet. And if I had any, I'd sell them to you, but they're long gone. It was a bestseller. There it is. And if you, I don't think you can read the print from, maybe you can, and see Carl's name in that list down below the earth. Zeta Reticuli incident. So, not across the galaxy, not another galaxy, just down the street, around the corner. There's Buster, as Betty used to call him. Here's a book by Kathleen Martin and I. This, she's Betty's niece. And we go into the star map, the whole story. The first book came out in 1966, The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller was a bestseller. Uh, <clears throat> this came out within the last 10 years. And it takes the story forward from the mid-60s. The rest of Betty's life, the things that happened, she died just a few years ago. Uh, pretty special gal. Feisty. And we come to Roswell. Uh, 
I had a guy who's now a congressman from Minnesota tell me, well, it couldn't have been much of a story. It only appeared in a small town newspaper. I'd sent the producers of that television program six front page stories from major newspapers. He hadn't looked at them. Yes, Roswell's a small town, about 50,000 people. Uh, Chicago is a little larger than that. Now, I had a man from Australia tell me, Stan, what are you talking about? RAAF is Royal Australian Air Force. It's Roswell Army Airfield, darn it. I'll be there next week. They're having their annual UFO festival. When they had the 50th anniversary celebration, there were over 300 newsmen there from all over the world. They draw big crowds. It's not on the way to anywhere. If you're in Roswell, it's because you want to be there. Well, it's true. I mean, if it was in Albuquerque, everybody drives through Albuquerque going east-west, but uh, not Roswell. They improved the highway going down there from the big highway. <laughs> it's now four lanes because of all the people going to the museum. Uh, this is, I, I can't use a pointer because if I point at the screen, you won't see a point on your screen. So. Uh, Albuquerque in the middle there. Uh, White Sands Missile Range in that yellow area was conducted there in that yellow area, Trinity site. You can take a tour, uh, should you wish to do so. Uh, that's where we were firing a captured German V-2 rockets and all that sort of thing. And the reason that the stuff was done there is because there's nobody there. People want to go out to the crash site, and I recommend against it. There's no road. Uh, there are scorpions and rattlesnakes, hotter than heck. Your cell phone doesn't work very well. No 3A, no gas stations, nothing like that. And there's 10,000 square miles of land that looks exactly like the crash site. Now, I bill myself as the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident, and I was. How did I find out? Well, I was giving a lecture at Louisiana State University, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I was brought to the local television station, CBS station, to do three interviews to promote the lecture that night at Louisiana State University. So I did the first two. The third reporter was nowhere to be found. This is in 1978. And this is before everybody had a cell phone. Uh, and so the station manager, he's giving me coffee. He's looking at his watch. He knew the people who brought me to the station. He knew I had other things to do. And he didn't want to lose the interview. And out of the blue, he says, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. Brilliant investigator that I am. I said, who's he? His answer changed my life. He said, oh, he handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? Where did that come from? You know, it, it, we hadn't been talking about anything like that. He wasn't joking. There were just the two of us there. Well, what do you know about him? Well, he, he lives in Homa. That didn't mean anything to me. I'd never been to home. I was later to talk to Jesse. Uh, he's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. You ought to talk to him. And I found out later Jesse hadn't told him anything. He'd seen the article in the newspaper in the New Orleans Times-Picayune, I think it's called, 
Uh, and back then, if you had a story about a, a veteran or somebody in the military, you'd often give his hometown. And the station manager had seen the article. And he was a ham radio guy, and they talked. And I asked him later, what did Jesse tell you? He didn't tell me anything. He said, I can't talk about that. But he had seen the newspaper article. So the next day from the airport, I called information. This Baton Rouge airport. I called information, got a number for Jesse Marcel, and talked to him. Mentioned Bill Allen, the guy at the television station. And he told me his story. And people said, well, why did he talk to you? He was one of the few people that couldn't deny his involvement. As I found out later, I didn't know at the time. His name was in newspapers around the world. His picture was in some newspapers. He couldn't say he had nothing to do with that. It turns out he was the intelligence officer for the 509th, the most elite military group in the entire world. Why do I say that? Because they're the guys who dropped the atomic bomb. The two on Japan, two more in Operation Crossroads. Uh, the only people in the world who had nuclear weapons. Hand-picked officers, hand-picked men. This wasn't a bunch of GIs sitting around with nothing better to do but to make up stories. One of the big critics said, an anonymous uh, PIO, public information officer, put out an unapproved story. Total nonsense. Walter Hout, the guy who put out the story, uh, was in the first place a World War II bombardier, 20 missions over Japan. In second place, a darn good one. He was chosen to drop the instrument package over one of those tests in Operation Crossroads in 1946. Uh, and he was close to Colonel Blanchard, who was the base commander. And you'll hear somebody say, oh, he was a, a loose cannon. Well, that loose cannon got four more promotions and was a four-star general and vice chief of staff of the Air Force when he died in the mid-60s of a heart attack while in his office at the Pentagon. You don't get those four promotions unless you've got something on the ball. And on the long, uh, the long way up, he had thousands of nuclear weapons under his control. Loose cannon? I don't think so. I talked to his first and second wife. I talked to his daughter and his two sons. I believe you ought to get firsthand testimony about such things. There's Jesse. Uh, this picture made it all over the place, a couple of pictures, uh, taken in General Roger Ramey's office. What had happened was the, in, the rancher who found some of this wreckage came into town because he'd heard that there was a reward being offered for wreckage, and the guys in Corona, New Mexico, said, why don't you go see the sheriff's office? They knew about the story because they read newspapers. The rancher, Mac Brazel, didn't get a newspaper, didn't have a telephone. But when they said, check on the reward, he went into the sheriff's office in Roswell. The sheriff called the base, as he was supposed to do. And Jesse Marcel, the base intelligence officer, talked to his boss, who said, follow him out. They took the counterintelligence corps guy, because they thought maybe somebody's spying. Remember, this is the only guys with nuclear weapons in the world for sure it would be a target of Russian or anybody else's spies. So Jesse goes out with the counterintelligence corps, follow, guy follows the rancher, Mac Brazel, out to the middle of nowhere, 75 miles or so away, 
sees this area covered with small pieces of very strange material. Jesse had seen airplane crashes in the Pacific, and there wasn't anything conventional out there. No wire, no vacuum tubes, no tags saying made in Oshkosh or whatever. Put stuff in his car, leaving most of it out there, comes back, takes it into the base the next morning, but the night when he comes back, he stops at home and shows some to his wife and son, Jesse Jr. And you saw Jesse Jr. talking about his meeting with Dick D'Amato in Washington. I met with Dick that same day in that same sub-basement. Uh, don't know why that all went on, but it did. Uh, Jesse, that was in the picture that you saw, was a medical doctor, a colonel, had been called in at age 68, was fighting, flying combat missions in the Middle East. 225 combat hours flying helicopters. He was a flight surgeon and they were in short supply. Age 68. And when Peter Jennings did his, uh, I'll call it a special, not very, uh, show about UFOs, I mean, I was interviewed for over an hour. They used 20 seconds, called me an operator twice. They had Jesse on, didn't mention he was a doctor, didn't mention he was a colonel serving at that time in the Army and on leave from flying tough missions in the Middle East. This is how television is supposed to operate? I expected a good deal from Peter Jennings. We both have the same birthday, July 29th, and both Canadians and Americans. I'd forgotten that Benito Mussolini was also born on July 29th, you know. <laughs> Can't win them all. It's taken in the same office that General Roger Ramey, head of the 8th Air Force, Colonel Blanchard reported to him, and Thomas Jefferson DuBose, his right-hand man, with the phony wreckage that they substituted for the stuff that Jesse had brought. He, under Colonel Blanchard, had told him to take this stuff to our headquarters in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. And of course, he followed orders. And when he got there, they took his stuff, brought out this phony balloon wreckage. It's real wreckage, but of a balloon that was conventional, weather balloon. And this picture made it all over the place. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Ramey is holding in his hand this little message, and somebody has managed to use some good computer stuff, and it has words like, victims of the wreck. Did you ever hear of a weather balloon that had victims of the wreck? I mean, come on. There's Tommy DuBose. I thought he might still be alive. I checked with West Point that maybe he had gone there, and he had, and he was still alive in Florida, and I went and saw him. And he told me directly, he was in his mid-80s, uh, that he took the call from Ramey's boss, General McMullen, giving him three orders. They knew each other, also West Pointer, as was Ramey, as was DuBose, as was Blanchard. Uh, gave him three orders. Get the press off our back. I don't care how you do it. This is after this press release went all over the place. <coughs> Send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your Colonel Couriers from Fort Worth to Washington. And three, 
I don't want you ever to talk about it, not even with your buddy Roger Ramey. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing? No, sir. When a two-star general tells a colonel what to do, he does it. People say, why did he follow orders? Because that's what you do. This was two years after the end of the war. Both West Pointers, both knew each other. So don't be surprised that he followed orders. But of course, by the time I talked to him, uh, Ramey was dead, uh, McMullen was dead, Roswell's story was out in the open, so to speak. Not enough, but some. Uh, but that's just to prove that you go to the source. His, part of his interview is in a, a DVD out there, Recollections of Roswell. We have t more than 20 first-hand witnesses. Unfortunately, they're all dead. So I can't tell you, go re-interview them, because unless you know how to, well, some of you may know how to reach the other side, but I don't. <laughs> Whoops. That was in the newspaper. Uh, the rancher was taken from his ranch back to the base and given a new story to tell. And he said, if I ever see anything again, I won't report it. Uh, there's that Roswell report. You see, the Air Force put out uh, several different explanations. First, flying saucer. Then, oh, sorry, radar reflector weather balloon combination. And then, Mogul balloon, super secret balloon project. The idea was to launch this train of 20, 25 balloons, keep them at high altitude, and listen for a Soviet atomic test. Uh, we didn't know when they were going to have their first test, but these would stay at a constant altitude for a long time. Uh, it wasn't super secret. The purpose of the project was super secret. None of the technology was. And there was no balloon launch that matched the date and all the rest of that. And when balloons sit in the desert in New Mexico for, say, a month, uh, they turn pretty much to crummy old stuff because uh, of the heat. They're just plastic. Not very good plastic at that. So that was the next explanation. And then finally, the crash test dummy that Grant mentioned. Now, you know, I, I got to admire their gall, their guts. None of the crash test dummies were dropped until six years after Roswell. So we got time travel for crash test dummies. <laughs> and here's what they look like. The dummies in the middle. <laughs> I talked to the man on the right, a colonel, we met had breakfast together in Albuquerque, and he stressed that for the test to be meaningful, the dummies had to be the same size and weight as pilots. They were six feet tall and 175 pounds. And you notice that they're in uniform gear. Why is that? Because if you go out of an airplane in an ejection seat, let's say at 40,000 feet, the clothes you have on affect the heating and the drag. And you have to, they're trying to find out how soon do you pull the ripcord. If you stay up there too long, uh, you might freeze to death because it's very cold up at 40,000 feet. So the clothes were important. Now, I'm sure that any rancher finding a crash test dummy like that, and often the limbs fell off, they're just made out of wood, is going to think we're being invaded by aliens? 
How absurd. Now, the New York Times carried the story. They didn't bother to indicate to interview the colonel. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Crash test dummy sounds like a reasonable explanation for the talk about bodies. There was more than talk. There were bodies. Then we come to, can't go into details, but I'll be talking about it on Sunday. I'm the last speaker. But Operation Majestic 12. We got a roll of film with eight pages of a briefing, supposedly top secret magic, for President-elect Eisenhower talking about how in 1947, shortly after Roswell, President Truman established this group called Majestic 12 to deal with it. And it mentioned that bodies were found. Uh, it's detailed, and the question, of course, is whether the role of film, I mean, whether the, the documents are legitimate. I spent a heck of a lot of time on that. I've written a whole book, Top Secret Magic, which is out at the table. You can check on me. Uh, I'm convinced that there were four genuine MJ-12 documents, Majestic 12, and there were dozens of phony documents. It would seem natural to me that Air Force intelligence, if good stuff gets out, puts out garbage and hoping it'll rub off some of the garbage on the good stuff. Well, these are phony, so they must all be phony. Disinformation is an important part of intelligence work. We made a real effort and succeeded in convincing Hitler that the landing in Europe, which was sure to come, was going to be at Calais rather than at Normandy. And when the generals went to Hitler and said, release the reserves after the landing happened, Hitler said, no, that's not the real landing. It's going to be over there at Calais and held back and held back until it was too late. We even put phony papers in the jacket pocket of an officer who had died, dropped the body in the ocean near Spain knowing that the Germans would get it. And it hinted at, if you will, a callous situation. Disinformation uh, is a game that's played quite a lot, and it's quite important. But these are not disinformation. They're significant. And I've put together a list. You can write me. There's a list out there. You get my email address and so forth of the false claims that have been made by the debunkers of this and all the things that we didn't know until after we got the documents that were true. How did a hoaxer know that when nobody knew that on the outside? It's a complicated story. But it wouldn't be strange to find disinformation to go with the information. You can't stand up in public and say, well, these are genuine documents, or these are phony documents. You just imply it along the way. It's a game that's played. It lists the mem members of this group that was set up, MJ-12, Majestic 12. The most interesting name on this list, some of you will recognize some of the names, General Twining, James Forrestall, uh, General Vandenberg. Uh, the next, the third from the bottom, Dr. Donald Menzel. And immediately, oh, obviously a phony document. He was a debunker. He was a Harvard University professor of astronomy. Everybody else got a high-level clearance. You don't need a clearance to teach astronomy 
at Harvard. And how would a debunker be part of such a group? Wrote three anti-UFO books, gave speeches, etc. Well, I had to get permission from three different people. All these guys were dead, how convenient, uh, to see his papers at Harvard, because I found one memo uh, which raised some questions about a loyalty hearing. They were trying to take away a security clearance. What did he need a security clearance for? So I contacted the people at Harvard, look at his papers, I had to get permission in writing from three different people to look at them, got the permission, went there, discovered to my total shock, I didn't like him when he was alive, frankly. Uh, I looked at his papers and there he's writing Kennedy. He had a longer continuous association with the NSA of anybody in the country, 30 years, and its Navy predecessor. Turned out he was a world-class cryptographer. Did classified work for the CIA and a bunch of companies and agencies. Nobody knew any of this. I was totally shocked. And I still get people saying, well, he was a debunker. Every spy, let, let me give you three names, Burgess, Philby, and McLean. These guys were all employed by British intelligence. They were all Russian spies. That's where you got to really be careful because you can't say anything that where somebody will point to you and say, how could they have gotten this information except from this guy? So the game is played. It's an exciting story. Uh, it's not over. This is one of the memorandum, and there are all kinds of details, which I know I don't have time to go into. I'll be talking about MJ-12 on Sunday in detail. Here's a letter from Truman to Secretary of Defense Forrestal authorizing the establishment of Operation Majestic 12. Here's a memo we found and all kinds of attacks on this memo. Phil Klass, the biggest debunker of all. Oh, you didn't notice, I suppose, that it was done in the large pica type, but the National Security Council, it mentions NSC on there only used elite type. I got nine samples to prove it. I challenge you to find any genuine documents from the NSC done in the same size and style pica type. I'll pay you $100 each. It's got to meet certain requirements, up to a maximum of 10. Well, I was go he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library. I checked and found out. And I was going there anyway. To make a long story short, I dug out 14 that met all his requirements, made copies, sent him an invoice for $1,000. He set a limit of 10. It's a shame, because I would have been a rich man. Anyway, uh, sent him an invoice, and he paid me $1,000. Didn't tell anybody about paying me. told everybody about challenging me. And uh, it surprises people. There's his check. Well, this is what I mean when you got to check firsthand. I went to the library, I dug out, it's easy to pick out Pika from Elite, and he, he couldn't fight it. But it's typical of the intellectual bankruptcy of the pseudoscience of anti-ufology. Don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up. But the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. And do your research by proclamation because investigation is too much trouble and nobody will know the difference anyway.
So I come on strong with these guys. I've done debates on coast to coast radio. Dr. Michael Shermer, head of the Skeptic Society. It's, it's a debunking society. It's not a skeptic society. I got 80% of the vote. Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute. SETI stands for Silly Effort to Investigate, S-E-T-I, based on a whole bunch of unscientific notions. Like aliens are stuck using tech, our technology for sending radio signals. I don't use a slide rule anymore. Why would they be stuck with old technology? First long distance radio, 1901. That's not very long ago. And besides, who are they sending a message to here? When we make contacts as some of the SETI people, they will then help us solve our problems. The nearest one might be as close as a thousand light years. Hey out there, we got a problem. What can we do for you? 2,000 years later, we get the answer back. That's a real help. I'm not making this up. Here's my book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C. Uh, and in case you're wondering, yes, there is a cover-up. Well, you can't prove that, Friedman. There's no cover-up. That's what people will tell me. Well, sure I can. Uh, here's Jesse Marcel Jr.'s book. I wrote the foreword. There's my book about Roswell. I think I have some documents here. That's the DVD. You don't care about that. I'll show you some quick pictures just because it's a UFO lecture. Up in the middle at the top, this is Hawaii. I think what's behind it is an ionized air plasma related to a magneto-aerodynamic propulsion system similar to the electromagnetic submarine that was successfully operated a number of years ago. Uh, salt, uh, where's the Mormon temple? Salt Lake City, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the UFO is in the middle on the top. I talked to the photographer who took the pictures. Uh, I think here's another one, number five with an ionized air plasma around it. Santa Ana, California, a high, guy who worked for the state of California took the pictures. Uh, this is McMinnville, Oregon. I've got to replace this. Something happened to it. I don't know what. Even the University of Colorado study couldn't find an explanation for this picture other than legitimate. Series off the island of Trindade, off the coast of Brazil, mid-50s. Ship was there as part of the International Geophysical Year. Everybody said, there goes a flying saucer. Take a picture. The official Navy photographer took the pictures up central there. These were released to the public by the president of Brazil, incidentally. Oh, yeah. The cover-up. Uh, this is a CIA top-secret Umbra UFO document. You can read, uh, I think there are eight words on this page that you can read. And don't say scrape off the block. They send you Xeroxes. There's nothing under there. <laughs> uh, I've got dozens of these. Here's another one. And what I thought I had but don't seem to have is an NSA top-secret Umbra UFO document. I got 156 of them. They didn't use blackout because they heard, and they told me this, they heard from Mr. Class that I showed these documents, blacked out version of some of the documents on television 
and didn't say that it was because of sources and methods, which of course I did say, but so they only used whiteout. I've got 156 pages of top secret Umbra NSA UFO documents on which you can read one sentence per page. And yet I got people saying, Stan, there's no cover-up. I say, can you read what's under the whiteout? Well, no, then there's a cover-up. That's pretty straightforward. Well, this is my favorite CIA UFO document. They couldn't find eight words to declassify on this page. Deny in toto. Uh, orders were actually issued in 1952. Shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. Now, how do you tell a UFO pilot, hey, get your tail on the ground, buddy? I have personally heard seven stories after my lecture of people who were at military bases where a pilot was scrambled to chase a UFO. Orders were issued, incidentally, to do that shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. I have heard seven different cases where guys were at bases where some, a pilot was scrambled and never came back. If I've heard seven cases, there are a lot more than that. This is Frank Faschino's book about the Flatwoods Monster case, and he finds 200 cases of fatal military plane crashes between 1951 and 1956. Five of the pilots were guys who had flown a hundred missions in Korea where MiGs were chasing them and trying to shoot them down. They come back here and they have fatal crashes. That's a little unusual. If you, you're got to be a pretty good pilot to fly a hundred missions when people are trying to shoot you down. That's one of the DVDs out there. Seth Shostak, we debated, I got 57% of the vote, he got 33% and 10% said, I don't know who won. This was on Coast to Coast Radio. Enrico Fermi, you've heard of the Fermi Paradox. He had a great scientist, one of the reasons I went to the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize. He was well known for asking questions as part of his teaching methodology. And he, they were having lunch at Los Alamos when, as they left, they were talking about how little time it would take to colonize the entire galaxy. And as they were leaving, Fermi said, so where is everybody? He didn't say there's nobody coming here. He, he asked the question. And there, there's a whole book that's been written with answers to that question. I think the true answer was, uh, we don't know where everybody is. We know that some of them have come here, and the government knows a great deal about them and isn't telling us. Fermi was the one who put together the first nuclear chain reaction, chain reacting pile, if you will, part of the atom bomb project. He had a high-level security clearance. Whether he knew anything about flying saucers, I don't, have no idea. And he died while I was at Chicago, so I certainly didn't have a chance to ask him. But uh, don't be fooled by people saying that Fermi said nobody was coming here. Not so. There's my book. How's the timing? Yeah, we're done. Thank you very much for listening.